understanding the X period for considering the mid X view. So we believe that the book of Acts is a record of the conclusion of the work Christ began with Israel, taking the message of salvation through faith in their Messiah to Israelites around the world, and also as that early blade stage of the kingdom of God. Some, however, have suggested that God's offer to Israel took place at the beginning of the book of Acts, and that afterwards Acts becomes a transitional book, wherein God is working more and more with Gentiles and less and less with Israel as the book goes on. And this view is often called the mid-Acts view, or mid-Acts dispensationalism. Or sometimes it's called the Pauline view, Pauline dispensationalism, or there are other names like the grace message, and so forth. But this is an alternative view to our view, which is that the book of Acts as a whole is about God's work with Israel and God's kingdom work, and that only at the end, at Acts 28-28, does that work get interrupted, and God begin his dispensation of grace today. So we're going to be considering this mid-Acts view and why we believe it's incorrect and that the book of Acts is, in fact, a whole and part of God's work with Israel and the kingdom. So what the mid-Acts view often points to as a significant point is the stoning of Stephen or Stephen. You know, I always I remember when I was a little kid in Sunday school, I, you'd, you'd read Stephen and then they'd say, no, no, it's Stephen. And then I got to learning Greek, and in Greek I learned that PH is always pronounced like an F. I said, ha, Sunday school teachers, I was right back when I was in fourth grade or whatever it was. Uh, in Greek it would be Stephen. But whether it's Stephen or Stephen doesn't matter. Is stoning. Well, the Mid-Ex view says that this was Israel's last failure. And their view is that Israel rejected Christ at the cross by, of course, putting him to death but that God graciously gave Israel one more chance. But at the stoning of Stephen, Israel squandered that chance, and so God set them aside and started a new work among the Gentiles. So this is the view that is usually held by those who hold the mid-Acts view. Well, I believe, first of all, that the idea that Israel rejected Christ is incorrect. And, of course, this is not just the mid-Acts view that holds this. This is the view that's pretty much common just about everywhere in the Christian world, and yet I believe it's wrong. If we would look, first of all, at Mark chapter 12 and verse 37, this is where the Lord was having his great confrontation with the religious leaders, and you know they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the Sadducees asked him, well, what about this woman who married seven husbands? Which one is she married to? And so forth. But at the end of the, the whole confrontation in Mark 12, 37, the Lord says, David therefore called him Lord, and whence then is he his son? It says, and the common people heard him gladly. So here he is, he's having this, this big contention with the religious leaders. And whose side were the common people on? Were they on the side of their beloved leaders? No. No, they, heard, they were glad to hear the Lord trouncing their leaders. They heard him gladly. The common people were generally on his side. Now in Matthew chapter 21, we have an interesting contrast in the event of the triumphal entry. 
in Matthew chapter 21 and starting in verse 9. As the Lord is entering Jerusalem, it says, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, which Hosanna means come save, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So as he's coming into Jerusalem, as this triumphal entry is going on, he arrives at the city, and the city is amazed. Who is this that everybody's cheering as he comes in? Now understand, this was at the start of Passover time. And at Passover time, as you know, every Israelite male, especially if he's the head of household, was supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so all these crowds from all over the land are coming in, and they're the ones who are cheering the Lord and laying down the palm branches and, and cheering him coming in. And Jerusalem, the city, is amazed and doesn't know who it is. Now realize that Jerusalem, the city, was the capital of Israel. It was like Washington, D.C. is in the United States. It's the reason the city exists, more or less, is to be the center. Now, since they didn't have separation of, of as we call it, separation of church and state, it was the religious and the government center. It was both combined. But this was the, the governmental center of the land. And at the government center, where the powerful leaders were, those powerful leaders who put the Lord on the cross, they aren't the ones cheering the Lord as he comes in. And, and all the, just like in Washington, D.C., most of the people, if they don't work for the government, they work serving people who work for the government at the restaurants and all the other things. You know, I'm maybe not working for the government, but all the people who are coming into my restaurant work for the government. So they're all people involved with the government. And they don't know who the Lord is. They aren't the ones cheering him. They're kind of amazed about this whole thing. Now if we go to Mark chapter 14 and verse 43, which is the rest, arrest of the Lord in the garden. In Mark 14 and verse 43, we read, And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude, with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So here we have that same word multitude, meaning a, a crowd, that we had at his triumphal entry. But remember, the crowd at his triumphal entry was the crowd of people coming into Jerusalem from the outside, coming into Jerusalem for the feast. Here we have a crowd, a multitude, same word, coming to arrest him. And yet, this crowd is from the chief priests and, and from the scribes and from the elders. In other words, from the leaders of Jerusalem. These are... Jerusalemites. This is a Jerusalem crowd. These are government flunkies. Those are the ones coming to arrest him. But it uses the same word multitude as the ones who are cheering him. But notice it's a different multitude. This multitude is from the corrupt Jerusalem leaders. We might say the Jerusalem mafia. And the crowd that cheered him was a different crowd. So that when we get to Mark 15 and verse 11, and this is the Lord's trial before Pilate, it says, But the chief priests moved the people, that he should rather release Barabbas unto them, that is, Pilate. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Now here is a crowd at Pilate's judgment seat, a crowd that the chief priests move, 
convinced to ask for Barabbas and demand the Lord's crucifixion. Yet which crowd is it that's there at the judgment seat? Which crowd is it that's being moved by the chief priests? Is it the crowd that cheered him and, and paraded him as he came into the city? Or is it the crowd that came out to arrest him in the garden who are the, the flunkies and the underlings of the chief priests and elders and scribes? Well, I would contend that of course it's the Jerusalem crowd. Of course it's the, it's the government crowd, the crowd under the control of the leaders. They weren't going to call out the crowd that loved the Lord to be at Pilate's judgment seat. They're going to call out the crowd that hated him. And yet, this is constantly a claim in the Christian world that the same crowd, they'll say, the same crowd that cheered the Lord as he came into the city demanded the Lord's crucifixion later. The same crowd. And they act like there was only one crowd in all of Israel that it could have possibly have been. Like there couldn't possibly be two crowds. And we ought to know better. You know, if there's one crowd at a Republican convention cheering the Republicans and another crowd at a Democrat convention cheering the Democrats, we don't think how fickle these people are. They change their minds depending on which convention is going on. No, we realize it's a different crowd. How can we think that this is the same crowd? This is just slander to our fellow lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 27 and verse 25... Here are the famous words. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. This was after Pilate, in verse 24, saw that he couldn't convince the crowd otherwise. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And they say, His blood be on us and on our children. Well, there are people who act like this crowd at Pilate's judgment seat, this basically unruly mob called out by the religious leaders to demand Christ's blood. They act like they had every right to bring blood on themselves and on their children, and not only that, but on every Jew around the world and every descendant of every Jew around the world for the next 2,000 years. And yet I would contend that they no more had the right to do this than Pilate had the right to wash his hands and say, I'm not guilty of what I'm about to do, and then command his soldiers to take the Lord out and execute him. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just do that with sins? You're about to murder somebody, you just wash your hands, I'm not guilty of this, and then you can murder him just fine. Or commit adultery, you wash your hands, I'm not guilty of this, and go commit adultery. You can do whatever you want as long as you wash your hands and say, I'm not guilty of it first. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but nor does it make any sense that a crowd can say, what we're about to do, our children are going to be guilty for too. Not to mention, say, our entire nation and all the people in it, including all the millions who aren't here, are guilty of what we're about to do. And yet Christians down through the ages have charged Israel with rejecting Christ because of what this unruly crowd of flunkies of the religious leaders did. Well, I would contend that this crowd in no way represented the 8 million Jews around the world. And they certainly didn't represent that happy crowd that welcomed the Lord into the land who were from outside the city, who were camped out in the hills around Jerusalem and probably knew nothing of what was going on at the Lord's trial. Now, if we would look at, at what the crowd that loved the Lord did when the Lord was being put to death, look at Luke 23, verses 27 through 28. And as you're turning there, I've heard people talk about the Lord on the way to the crucifixion. 
And they would say, well, historically we know that when people were being led away to the crucifixion, those people were the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. And so the crowds, as they would pass by, would be spitting on them and, and booing them and mocking them. And so that's probably what the crowd was doing while the Lord was on his way to the crucifixion. Well, you know, that's interesting. You can go and look back historically, and I think that's probably true. But they didn't actually look at Scripture before they came up with this idea, because look at what Luke 23, 27 says. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So the crowd that followed him, even including the women of Jerusalem, maybe whose men were guilty of putting him on the cross, the crowd was weeping for him on the way to the cross. They weren't mocking him and spitting on him. They were weeping for him. These were people who had been asleep while this illegal nighttime trial went on, had no idea what was happening to the Lord, and when they find out, they're weeping. Then verse 48 of Luke 23, right after the Lord died on the cross, it says, And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And smiting their breasts was a sign of, of great regret and, and, and great upset at what they'd just seen and what they just witnessed. They were upset. They were grieving. The crowd wasn't against him. The crowd hadn't turned on him like Christians are commonly blaming them for doing. The crowd was for him. It's just they didn't find out what was going on until too late. So, Israel did not reject the Lord at the cross. And moving on to our main topic of the stoning of Stephen. I would contend that the crowd that condemned Stephen to be stoned were the same ones who condemned Christ, that is, not the common people. Now let's look at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Now in the Greek, the council there is the Sanhedrin, that same ruling body of the Jews who condemned the Lord to death. And set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, that is in the Sanhedrin, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Yet what did they do? They went right on with the trial. Then said the high priest, are these things so? So this council that Stephen is appearing before is the Sanhedrin, the same corrupt council that condemned the Lord to death. And it's the same corrupt high priest that was in charge of the Lord's trial that is in charge of this trial before the Sanhedrin. 
Now, even if we could contend that, well, the Sanhedrin did represent the nation, so maybe if they rejected him, the nation did. Well, but what about Stephen's last prayer? Acts chapter 7 and verse 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So even as they were putting him in the right position to stone him to death, he prayed that the Lord wouldn't charge them with this sin. So his last prayer, even if this action could have condemned the nation, his last prayer would have prevented this. Was the Lord not going to grant this last gracious prayer of Stephen? God would not condemn Israel for Stephen's death since he prayed that it not be laid to their charge. Even, as I said, if the Sanhedrin condemning him would have been the same as the nation condemning him. Now, another contention that the Mid-Acts crowd will make is that the fig tree parable of Luke 13, 6 through 9 is talking about the stoning of Stephen and this last chance that the Jews had. So Luke 13, verse 6. And this portion I, I owe thanks to Candy Davis and some of her excellent seed and breads on this subject. So I'm, I'm borrowing somewhat from her uh, for this portion. And we're sorry she can't be with us for this conference. But in the, in the parable of Luke 13 and verse 6, he spake also this parable, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. So those who hold to this mid-Acts idea contend that this is talking about the three years are the Lord's three-year ministry, wherein he sought fruit from Israel and, and found no fruit in Israel. But he said, give them one more year, give them one more chance, and we'll see if they produce fruit. And that one more year was the year up to the stoning of Stephen. And that at Stephen's stoning, why that was it, that was the last straw. Israel had rejected the Lord, and they were done. So they say this parable proves it. But I want you to notice something about this parable. He said, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So we have two things here. We have a fig tree and a vineyard. So we ask, what is the vineyard? Let's look at Psalm 80. Psalm 80, starting in verse 8. In this psalm it says, speaking to God of hosts, Psalm 88, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen, the nations, and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs onto the sea, and her branches onto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine... And the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, 
and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. So in this parable, who is the vineyard and the great vine that the Lord planted? Well, that vineyard is Israel. The people God brought out of Egypt cast out the nations in front of them and planted them there. So the vineyard is Israel. But the Lord isn't talking in his parable in Luke 13 about destroying the vineyard because it's not producing crops. He's talking about a fig tree inside a vineyard that isn't producing figs. And if it continues not to do, produce figs, then we cut the fig tree down. We don't destroy the whole vineyard for the lack of the fig tree. Now the parable in Matthew 21, I believe, teaches the same thing as that parable in, in Luke 13. It's a different parable. But in Matthew 21 and verse 33, we have another parable about a vineyard. In Matthew 21, 33, the Lord says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now notice verse 45. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. See, here we have a parable of husbandmen over a vineyard who are being unfaithful with the fruits of the vineyard. And the Lord says he's going to come and destroy those husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. Now, once again, I would contend that the vineyard is Israel. And the Lord isn't going to be so wrathful what these husbandmen did that he comes in and destroys his vineyard as if it was the vineyard's fault. He's going to destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard to other better vineyard keepers. And see, that's what he did. He set aside these corrupt religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes, and he set up his apostles in their place. Because they, of course, would render him the fruit in season. So if anybody got a one year, one more chance in the parable of the fig tree, it was the religious leaders of Israel. It was not Israel itself that the Lord was going to destroy the nation because the leaders were wicked. No, he had his leaders in reserve ready, his apostles ready to go, when they proved uh, incapable and unwilling of doing what God wanted them to do. So the replacements were the Lord's apostles and acts, and it was the leadership over Israel, not Israel itself, that was going to be aside, set aside, and they were set aside 
after their failing once again to accept the Lord in early Acts. They did get another chance, but they squandered it. Now another contention of the mid-Acts view is that Paul is our apostle. And they, this idea makes Paul to be our apostle today. We say They would say the 12 were for Israel and Paul was for us. He's our apostle today. And they mean by this that from his conversion in Acts 9, or at least from the start of his ministry in Acts 13, and they can't always agree on which place exactly, but from one of these two places anyway, God was beginning a new work among the Gentiles. And that Paul was the one who was doing that new work among the Gentiles, and Paul's ministry was all about bringing the Gentiles in. And so therefore, they would argue that all Paul's books are written to us today, not just the post-Acts 28-28 ones, but every last book of Paul is for us and should be viewed as for us and interpreted as being for us. So it's all about Paul. That's why sometimes they call this Pauline dispensationalism. Now this idea that Paul is our apostle comes from the important chapter of Romans, chapter 11. And although I'm not going to do it here, I... In a, a future talk in this today, in this conference, I'm going to teach through the whole chapter of Romans 11. But for our sake, let's look at Romans 11, verse 13. He says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. So Paul says he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And so they say, well, we're Gentiles. Paul says he's the apostle to the Gentiles, so that means Paul is our apostle. That's their argument. Yet what if they would read on to verse 14 as far as why Paul magnifies his office as the apostle to the Gentiles? He says he magnifies his office, verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So Paul says, the reason I magnify my office as the apostle of the Gentiles is that I'm trying to provoke my fellow Israelites to jealousy to save some of them. So that's why he's so excited about being apostle to the Gentiles is he's hoping that Gentiles coming into the blessings that Israel had always been promised would make these Israelite rejectors jealous and say, hey, wait, those are supposed to be my blessings. And so then they believe so as not to miss out. And he says that's why he's excited to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, is that why someone who is our apostle today would be excited about being our apostle because he's hoping that the Jews would become jealous because of us? That doesn't make sense. That's not why I'm saved just to try to make a Jew jealous. I don't think any Jews were jealous when I was saved. <laughs> and I still think they aren't. I think they say, well, you're one of those Christians and I'm not one. I'm not jealous of you. So it doesn't make sense to try to apply this to today. And then in verse 17, he writes, And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, that is you Gentile, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. So the Gentiles Paul was speaking to were supported by the root of Israel. And so that means that they were subservient to the root. They were subservient to the tree they were being grafted into. 
But in Ephesians chapter 3, written after Acts 28, 28, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, that very important passage on truth for today, Paul says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And as I said yesterday, these three words, heirs, body, and partakers, all have the same prefix in Greek, soon, which means either joint or equal. So the nations are joint heirs, a joint body, and joint partakers, or equal heirs, an equal body, and equal partakers. Joint, 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 equal, equal, equal. Not subservient and just grafted into the main nation, Israel, but joint and equal and all on the same plane. And these, these two concepts of the nations being subservient branches grafted into Israel and this concept of all nations being equal and joint are so completely different that I would argue that these two, two passages couldn't possibly be true, both be true of the same people at the same time. Now they were both true when they were written, but that's because Romans 11 was written in the Acts period and was true then, and Ephesians 3 was written in the dispensation of grace and is true now. So Ephesians is truth for us today. Ephesians 3, Romans 11 is not truth for us today. It was truth for the Acts period. Now another contention of the mid-Acts crowd is that Acts 13 and verse 46 in fact, is the same as Acts 28, 28, and is saying the same thing. And that therefore, how could Acts 28, 28 be special when the same thing had already happened in Acts 13 and verse 46? So let's look at Acts 13 and verse 46. This is while Paul and Barnabas were at Pisidian Antioch. They had proclaimed to the Jews... But the Gentiles had heard and wanted they had wanted to be proclaimed to them. So in Acts 13, verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting or Ionian life, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And the mid-ex crowd would say, See, they turn to the Gentiles here. That's the exact same thing as happened in Acts 28.28. So how can you say Acts 28.28 is the dividing line when it had already happened all these years before? And, by the way, the same thing in Acts 18 and verse 6. Acts 18 and verse 6 seems to say the same thing, going to the, to the Gentiles when the Jews reject. So they would say Acts 28.28 28 is just one of a, uh, of a threesome, of a trilogy of verses. It's the last one of them. It's no different than Acts 13.46 or Acts 18, verse 6. And so some of them would say that makes Acts 13 and verse 46 the real dividing line. Now this was kind of the traditional mid-Acts view. And... Since then, they've kind of moved away from it, and I don't know how many of them there still are that say Acts 13.46 is the real dividing line. But at least there were some of them, it used to be, who would say this, and that was how they contended against Acts 28.28. Well, what would I say to this? Because Acts 13.46 does sound kind of like Acts 28.28. Well, I think to understand 
the difference between Acts 13.46 and Acts 28.28, we need to have a really good uh, grasp on Acts 28.28 and why it's so important and why we think it's the dividing line. So let's look at Acts 28.28 and I gave it there on your notes in the resultant version of Otis Q. Sellers. And I'll read it in that resultant version. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation bringing message of God is now authorized that is made freely available unto the nations and it will get through to them. Now here where it says that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, that word salvation, even though that's a noun in English, they've translated it by a noun, in Greek the word is an adjective, meaning salvation bringing. And it's an adjective without a noun which means you're supposed to supply it. That's called an ellipsis, when you have an adjective with a noun missing. It's an ellipsis, you're supposed to supply it. And I would contend that this is talking about the salvation-bringing message, because that's what brings salvation today, is a message, the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. And that was the same thing in the Acts period, the gospel brought salvation. So Paul is saying here that the salvation-bringing message of God now it says, is sent in the King James Version, but that word sent translates the Greek word apostello. A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. And that's the verb form of the word apostle. The noun apostle. And I believe the apostle is one who's commissioned or sent with authority. Well, all throughout the Acts period, as I've talked about, the apostles, God's commissioned men, carried the gospel, but now the gospel itself the message itself is being commissioned as an apostle. It's being sent. It's being authorized to all nations. Now then the word Gentiles there is ethnoi, a form of ethnoi, which means the nations, not the Gentiles. So it's not like, oh, salvation is going to everybody but Israel. They don't get it anymore. No, an Israelite can believe and be saved just like every other nation. But the gospel is being sent to all nations. Israel not excluded, included, so not the word Gentiles that would exclude Israel, but nations that would include them. The salvation-bringing message is being authorized, made freely available, become the apostle unto the nations, and they will hear it. Now let's compare that to Acts chapter 13 and verse 46. In Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas say, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of Ionian life, lo, we turn to the nations. And notice that Paul and Barnabas say, we, Paul and Barnabas, are turning to the nations. So this is a case of two apostles turning to the nations. And I would contend that that's not the same thing as the gospel message itself becoming the apostle, and going out to all nations equally. It's not the same thing. Now the result was, verse 48, And when the Gentiles, or the nations who were at hand, who heard Paul say this, when they heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal or Ionian life, believed. So the Gentiles were listening in and had hoped that they could receive the gospel to them as well. Well, when they heard this, they were excited and they listened and some of them believed. But notice in Acts 14 and verse 1, what happened in the very next city down the line? It says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together 
into the synagogue of the Jews. So the very next city down the line, they went right back to the Jews. They didn't say, oh, the Gentiles are all the same as the Jews now, so we'll just go to both, whoever, whoever will listen. No, they went right back to the Jews. Just in this one city, they had turned to the Gentiles. The next city down the line, they went to the Jews. Same thing in Acts 18 and verse 6. In Acts 18 and verse 5, when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, that is to Corinth, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles, unto the nations. So what did he say here? Did he say that the salvation bringing message is sent to the nations? No. He said, I, Paul the Apostle, will go to the nations. Then in verse 7, he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So where did he go? He went right next door to the synagogue. He didn't go very far, did he? Went right next door to the synagogue and proclaimed to the Gentiles who were available there. And yet, what happened in Ephesus, the next city down the line? Well, in Acts 18, verse 19, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So once again, did he say, well, now that I've turned to the Gentiles, uh, forget the Jews. I can go to Gentiles just as freely as Jews. No, he went right back to the Jews in the next city down the line. But in Acts 28, 28, it wasn't the case of just Paul going to the Gentiles in a certain city because the Jews in that city had rejected. In Acts 28, 28, he says, the message itself is now the apostle to all nations. I'm not the apostle anymore, the message is. And at that point, there is no going back to the synagogue. There's no going back to Israel being first, because now there's no priority to Israel. Now all nations have the gospel equally. All nations would be joint and equal, as Ephesians 3.6 says. So Acts 28.28 is very different from both Acts 13.46 and Acts 18 and verse 6. It's not just one of a group of three that all say the same thing. And by the way, this is equally true when this argument is made by the post-Acts dispensationalists. These are ones who say, we Acts 28, 28 people are wrong. That's not really the dividing line, because they'll say it's the same as Acts 13, 46, Acts 18, 6. It didn't change anything, so the real change must have been after Acts at some point, at the time Paul wrote Ephesians. Well, no, they aren't, they aren't understanding Acts 28, 28 either. They're making the same mistake as the mid-Acts crowd. Acts 28, 28 is new, different, and unique. And it is what made the change. Now, another argument of the mid-Acts crowd is that they will say that the latter portion of Acts is a transitional period. You see, in many cases, and in its origin... In many ways, the mid-Acts idea was a modification of the Acts 28-28 idea, the dividing line. That is, that they had read Sir Robert Anderson's classic book, The Silence of God, that argued for Acts 28-28 dividing line. Uh, they'd read, many of them, E.W. Bullinger. And so they, they thought Acts 28-28 was significant. But, in order to keep all Paul's books for us today, they said that at an earlier point, one of the ones we've talked about, the stoning of Stephen, maybe, or Paul's call in Acts 9, maybe, or 
start of Paul's ministry in Acts 13, maybe, or maybe Paul's statement in Acts 13.46, at one of those points, a transitional period started. That God decided, I'm going to move away from Israel, move toward the Gentiles, but I'm not going to move all at once. I'm going to do it slowly. And there's going to be a transitional period. And they will, they will create dispensational charts where you start off and you have Israel. Israel is, is the nation at the beginning of Acts and the Gentiles have nothing. But then you reach the start of this transitional period and Israel starts decreasing down and down and down and the Gentiles start increasing up and up and up and they, they cross at some point, it forms an X and then at some point at, at Acts 20, 28 probably, uh, Israel is done and, and gone and done with and the Gentiles are on top and the transition is over. So they have this X of Israel going down, the Gentiles going up, that they say was going on at, at the end of X, the transitional period. Now, they would support this, among other things, they would support this from Romans 11, verses 11 through 12. They use this to support the idea of Acts being a transitional period. In Romans 11, verse 11, Paul writes, I say then, have they, that is Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the nations, the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So they say Paul here says that Israel is diminishing. Israel is getting less and less, and the Gentiles are, are becoming full. They're increasing and increasing. So they say, see this verse right here says, Israel is diminishing, the Gentiles are increasing. It's that transition period. And so Israel has been diminishing, the rest of the world is increasing in Romans. So that shows the transition. Then they make a big deal out of Romans 11 and verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And see, what they'll say is that blindness in part has happened to Israel, and, and God is today calling the body of Christ. They, they think our calling of believers is called the body of Christ. That's our special name. And so God wants to call the entire body of Christ, and he has, he has an idea of just who all is going to be in the body of Christ. And so Israel remains blinded in part until the whole body of Christ is called. And then once God is finally done after 2,000 years calling all the body of Christ, then Israel won't be blind anymore. God will go back to Israel. So this is their view of the transitional period. However, this view, I would contend, ignores the actual Greek used in Romans 11, 11 through 12. I mean, it, doesn't it seem rather strange to you that God would say, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, no way that they should fall, but rather through their fall. Well, wait a minute, he just said, there's no way they're going to fall, but since they've fallen, what? How does that work? Well, they'll try to make it out that, that the, the first fall where they didn't fall was at the cross, right? They didn't fall at the cross because God gave them another chance. But then it's doing a step and then they did fall. And so from then on, Israel is diminishing and the Gentiles are increasing until the transition period is done. But in fact, the two words for fall are different words. God doesn't say Israel didn't fall and yet they did in, in the same sentence. God forbid, let it never be that they fell, but they've fallen. No, <laughs> no, 
doesn't make sense. But the first word is the Greek word pipto, P-I-P-T-O. It can mean to fall down prostrate. It can mean to cast into poverty. It can mean to perish or to fail. Has Israel stumbled that they should fall down completely, that they should perish, that they should fail completely? And then there's no word for God there. It's like, may it never be. Or sellers would say, let not my reasoning come to that. But then it says, but through their fall, and that's a Greek word, paraptoma. P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A. And it can mean to fall beside or near. It can mean to lapse, to deviate from truth or uprightness, or to sin. So he says, as Israel stumbled that they should fail, fall down and fail completely, let not my reasoning come to that, but rather through their lapse, their, their stumbling, their sin, their deviating from the truth, salvation has come to the nations. So Israel didn't fall completely at Stephen Stoning or any times afterwards. They lapsed. But Paul utterly denies that they fell. And as we saw in Romans 11, even Gentile salvation in Acts was for the purpose of provoking those Jews to be saved who were stumbling. Finally, contending against this transitional period is the fact that there is no sign of Israelite conditions diminishing in Acts. Romans was actually Paul's last Acts period letter. And yet, and it's in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, that means foremost, primarily, chiefly, and also to the Greek. We'll see if there's really this X going on, where Israel is going down and the Gentiles are going up. By the time we get to Romans, Paul's last book in the Acts period wouldn't you expect that the Israelites would be on that down portion of the X and the Gentiles would be on that up portion and the Gentiles would be more important than Israel by now? And yet Paul doesn't say the Gentiles are more important than Israel now. He says that the gospel is to the Jews primarily. So Jews primarily. is an awfully lopsided X if there was an X going on. No, the gospel is still to the Jews primarily at Paul's last book. And in fact, if we look at the book of Acts, we would see that from the beginning of Paul's ministry at Salamis, in Acts 13 and verse 5, it says, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That is, Paul and Barnabas. They also had John to their minister. That's Acts 13, 5, not 4. But from the beginning of Paul's ministry, the first place he went, Salamis, he goes to the synagogue. To the end of Paul's ministry, the last place he went, Ephesus, Acts 19, verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. So from the start of his ministry to the end of his ministry, Paul always went to the Jews first, into the synagogue. And there was no sign that Paul was considering the Jews less and less important and the Gentiles more and more important. He was going to the Jews first the whole time. Not only so, but the, the Israelite miraculous conditions of Acts continued. From the beginning of Acts, in Acts 3 and verse 8, 
when Peter and John at the beautiful gate of the temple heal the lame man. To the beginning of Paul's ministry at Acts 13, verse 11, where Paul causes blindness to come on Elymas the sorcerer. To the end of Paul's ministry in Acts 28, verses 8 through 9, where at Melita or Malta, Paul heals all those who come to him who are sick. The miracles of Acts continue all the way through the book without reduction. And if anything, as I already argued, if anything, there are signs that they're ramping up, not down. Because in the last place Paul goes in Acts 19 and verse 11, it tells us that God wrought or worked special miracles by the hands of Paul. So the last place Paul went, Paul worked miracles he'd never worked anywhere else. Special miracles especially spectacular ones. If anything, the power was getting greater, not less. It wasn't dying out. It wasn't transitioning away. Then, as we already talked about in an earlier message, in Acts 17 and verse 1, during Paul's second apostolic journey, you know, where he expected to be around the middle of the X if there's this X going on, but during his second apostolic journey is when we read in Acts 17.1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them. So, toward what should have been the middle of the Acts, according to the transition period, Paul passes by two cities. Why? Because they don't have synagogues in them. Paul doesn't consider it that the Gentiles are getting more and more important, so I ought to go to the Gentiles even if there aren't any Jews here. No, he's still looking to go to the Jews first. Then all the way at the end of his ministry, in Acts chapter 28, on the island of Malta, or Melita, in the King James Version, we read, And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita, or Malta, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. Verse 3, And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper, a poisonous snake, out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians, that means they couldn't speak Greek, when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer. They knew it was the prisoner ship he'd been riding on. No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire, and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen, or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while, and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds, and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us, and lodged us three days courteously, and it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laid at us with such things as were necessary. So here we have what we could call Paul's ministry on the island of Malta. And yet, do you notice anything missing there? If you compare that to every other place Paul ministered and worked, what doesn't Luke mention that he always mentions everywhere else? He doesn't mention the gospel, right? Here Paul does miraculous works, heals everybody who's sick, 
and yet it doesn't say a word about him proclaiming the gospel. Now, is that just because Luke didn't mention it? Luke thought the miracles were more important than the gospel? No, I don't think Luke ever thought miracles were more important than the gospel. In every other place Paul went and did miracles, it mentions them in the context of the gospel. Why would Paul have worked miracles here and not proclaim the gospel? Well, because there's no synagogue here. See, these people had blessed Paul, God's representative from the nation of Israel. And remember what God said to Abraham, He who blesses you, I will bless. So they blessed Paul, and so God blessed them by letting Paul heal those who were sick on the island. But see, there was still no synagogue of the Jews there. And so with no synagogue of the Jews, no Jews to provoke to jealousy, there's no mention of proclaiming the gospel on Malta. Now you can imagine Paul proclaiming the gospel all you want. But show me any other place where Paul worked miracles, and it doesn't say he proclaimed the gospel. Any place where there was a synagogue of the Jews. It'll tell us he proclaimed the gospel. Here, not a word. And I contend it's because there was no synagogue there. There were no Jews there. So, so much for our, us getting to the end of the Acts where the Gentiles are mostly all the way up and the Jews are mostly all the way down. Paul doesn't even proclaim the gospel in Malta when there are no Jews there. And the Gentiles were as much in the background here as they had been from the beginning. There is no transition going on. Now, I will say that if there is a transition period, you could say that after Acts 28.28, there was a bit of a transition period. Not that Israel is going down and down and the Gentiles going up and up. I think all nations were equal from the instant Paul made his proclamation at Acts 28.28. But still, there are some things true of our dispensation, like the fact that, that God is silent. He's not inspiring books of the Bible. And yet, from the moment of Acts 28.28, God still had a lot of books of the Bible to write. If he had stopped right there, our New Testament would be very incomplete. So he, he was still inspiring books. And so as long as God was still inspiring books, the silence, the complete silence hadn't fallen. And as long as someone, God told them to put pen to paper to write to someone, the truth that there's one mediator between God and men wasn't yet 100% completely true until God was done writing the, all the books in the New Testament. So there was, there was a bit of a transition period, but it wasn't about Israel going down and the Gentiles going up. It was just about God finishing up his word, closing things down from the Acts period before the full conditions of the dispensation of grace would come in. And it started at Acts 28, 28, ended when Paul put down his pen from writing the last book in the New Testament. And that was the transition period. And it didn't have anything to do with this Acts. So the mid-Acts view makes out that God started his present work sometime in the middle of Acts rather than at Acts 28.28. However, it's mistaken in multiple points. Israel did not reject Christ, and God did not set them aside because they rejected Christ. Paul's Acts period ministry was not mainly to Gentiles, but was always to the Jew first. Paul is not our apostle. Though it is true that it is in Paul's post-Acts 28.28 books that we get truth for today. So praise God for Paul's post-Acts 28-28 books. And for his Acts period ones, for that matter, they're awesome. But that doesn't mean he's our apostle. There's a huge difference, a vast difference between Acts 13-46 and Acts 28-28. They're not saying the same thing. There is no transitional period in the latter portion of Acts. God's work focused on Israel all the way through. So, looking at all the evidence, I believe we can't conclude but that the mid-Acts view of the Acts period is wrong, and that our view that the Acts period is a whole and focused on Israel is the correct one.